Good morning, everybody. We're just going to read Joshua 24 on page 236 in the Church Bibles. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Sir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Bar, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before your eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord, because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you, after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, 
Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timus Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua, and of the elders who outlived him, and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver, from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gebi, which had been allotted to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. Let me pray, and then we're going to have a great uh, reflection on how this book finishes. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I give you great thanks that we can come together today. We thank you that we can truly believe um, in Jesus, as we started off this morning in that first song, uh, because you keep your promises with a perfect record. Help us today as we see Joshua inspire the people to serve you and to be challenged to do that wholeheartedly, that all of us wrestle with that today, whether for the first time or as we're continuing on in our journey and our relationship with you. Amen. Now, I reckon I've learnt a very valuable lesson over the years. There is nothing, probably nothing more important than keeping your promise to a seven-year-old boy. <laughs> and when my daughters were seven, the same thing. When, when he asked, can we watch Avengers or play with Avengers, go and play footy and then go to golf, if I just say yes and it doesn't happen, I get a barrage of, but you promised, but you promised. And the tears flow and the whole hell breaks loose. If you promise something to a seven-year-old and you don't give a follow-through on it, you get retribution. Even if it's raining and golf's been caught off, it's still my fault. Because promises matter. And little boys want to be able to trust their dads. And when we think about life, we actually like living where promises are kept. Do we not? We live in a world of broken promises all the time. And we know that frustrates us. We hate it when our leaders do it. We hate it when people close to us do it. Maybe, if we're being honest, we hate it when we don't keep our promises that we've made. Marriage, the one thing they all have in common is promises are made. When a husband and wife come together and they make a promise, they promise to be together in the good times 
and in the bad. It's a new relationship built on promise under God. The book of Joshua, and for many of you, you may be here for the first time, you haven't read through this amazing book and it's so many amazing things happen in this book. There's one big, long lesson that in every chapter almost, the whole thread, the thing that is consistent throughout the whole book is that God keeps his promises. And our response is what our title to this series has been about. Our response to a promise-keeping God is total devotion. Not, that's kind of nice, I'm going to acknowledge him at points and, and get around to thinking about him on the odd occasion. It's God keeps his promises, total devotion. And that's where today finishes. And it really means for us here today, we are challenged whether we are going to hear that call and respond. And we're going to see that the promises made in an Old Testament book that seems so far removed from us are real because of where they point us towards today for you and me in the promises God makes about Jesus. Let me show you up front uh, these promise, beautifully summarised in one sentence in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which we will end seeing uh, later on. It says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and confess and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise made by God. Because of what Jesus has done, and you believe in that, there's no doubt. It's not a lotto ticket where you think, maybe I'll have eternal life. So if you are convicted that God keeps all these promises, and unlike me with Ethan sometimes, where I can't keep my promises or I fail, God has a 100% track record. And let's have a look at that today. And at the end, I'm going to challenge us all and ask you to respond with me to this call. You see, the big ideas that we've tackled so far going through is that God is promising his people Israel a land. And he promises them big promises, doesn't he? All of us who have been here every week, the thing I keep drumming on over and over and over again, what's the word? Lob. Lob. If you don't know what's just happened, then let me explain to you. God made one promise when he started God's people to Abraham. That the people are going to have land, offspring and blessing. Lob. And we've been saying that over and over again every week, so we can't forget it. God made this promise that his people will have a land to be with him. There will be many people as part of God's people. And they will be blessed and they will be a blessing to the nations. Those promises made to Abraham at Shechem. And we've seen that played out in the book of Joshua as the people, after wandering in the wilderness and going in in their sin and all the troubles that they had, after God rescuing them out of Egypt, they get into the promised land. And amazing things happen, how they go about it. And we see that God goes before them. He is the one who gives them the victories and the battles. And the battles are sometimes through God's amazing acts. They go through the River Jordan in extraordinary ways, just echoing the Exodus. The walls of Jericho fall down. The sun stands still, is the power of this God. And the people are called to be courageous and not cowards. And all of this, week after week, is to show that God keeps his promises. And the people are to respond to a God like that.
That's no different for us. So we finally get to the end of the book. The hero of the story, well, it isn't Joshua, it's God, but God's faithful servant Joshua is nearing the end of his life. And what he does, he wants to rally the troops. And he has two final speeches, one to the leaders and then to all the people, the leaders and all the people in chapter 24 that we had read. And in these speeches, we get reminded again of what God is like and what the legacy should be. See, if we have a look in uh, Joshua chapter 3, it'd be really helpful if you've got a Bible in front of you to to follow on with me as, as we look through this. We see in Joshua chapter 23, in verse 1, after a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua by then, a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges and officials and said to them, remember, in verse 4, if you skip to verse 4, he says, remember. What does he want them to remember? Well, he wants them to remember lots of things. He wants them to know what God has done because what he's going to do is pass on the baton to them. He knows his time's done, his job has been done, if you like, and he's telling the leaders, this is what you must do. I'm equipping you to go forward. And actually, nothing's changed from Joshua chapter 1. He tells them to remember everything God has done in verses 3 to 4. Let's read uh, verses 3 to 4 now. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these uh, nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I allotted as an inheritance for you, your tribes, all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the West. And then there's the promise that God's going to continue and drive out the rest to give them the rest of the land. God makes promises and he wants them to remember what is done. And in Joshua chapter 1, when Joshua starts his job, he says, remember how God rescued you out of Egypt. If there's anything God's people do, it's to constantly remind themselves of what God has done and never get sick of it. They're also to be strong and courageous. Remember, if you go back to Joshua chapter 1, they're looking at thinking, how are we going to go into these lands of these wicked people who have been despicable and are powerful and mighty? How are we going to go into these lands? Well, Joshua's instruction was to them from God, be strong and courageous. Verse 6, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Be strong and courageous by going to what God has said for you. He says, the next thing is follow the book of the law. That is, God's words. Follow them. God's spoken to you. The God who has made everything, the God who has made you his people, has spoken directly into you. Go to it and follow it, is what he says. If you're going to be the leaders from now on, Follow the words God has given. And then he calls them to be holy. As we've looked in other weeks, the word holy, which has all religious connotations of being moral and all those kind of things, which aren't wrong, but the idea of holiness is to be separate, morally like God. 
in that sense as well, but to be different, to be differentiated. God is so holy, so big, so pure, so different to everything else that he can't exist with wickedness. Wickedness gets destroyed with a holy God. And if you're to be God's holy people, you need to be holy. That is separate from them. And so in verse 7 we read, Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. He's saying you must not serve them or bow down to them because you are holy, because you are to be holy like the God who is holy. See, as he is about to die, he wants God's leaders to continue on. He wants a legacy of generation after generation totally devoted to the Lord. And he wants to lead them with conviction. He says in verse 14, he's about to go the way of all the earth. And he says, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. It's not like he has to prove it to them. He doesn't say to them, now, I know you don't think that God kept this, but let me show you how he has, because you just it's obvious. He says to them, you know that God has kept his promises to you. The God who has done these things for you. It's the foundation of why you totally give your life to him. He keeps his promises. Embrace the promises of God. If you're going to lead the people, lead them knowing your God always keeps his promises. They didn't get to the walls of Jericho and the walls stayed up and they endlessly walked around in this bizarre battle that's never been one like it and nothing happened and they walked home. God said there would be victory and in an extraordinary way, the walls fell down. It took 400 years of slavery in Egypt, but that was God's plan. But when the time was in God's timing, through Moses, they were redeemed out of slavery out of Egypt. God always keeps his promises. That is something that we need to consider in our lives. And do we truly believe that? And we'll, we'll get there a little bit later. But because Joshua is a good leader, he doesn't just go positive, he goes with warnings. He says, be warned. You must continue to hold fast and love the Lord, he says in verse 8 and verse 11, because, look at verse 12, if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. They'll be snares, he goes on to say. God will turn away from you if you embrace the other nations and reject him, he says to them. And then verse 15, even is stronger. Just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If 
you violate the covenant of the Lord your God and go serve other gods and bow down to them. The Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish for the good land he has given you. From the good land. God is holy. He keeps his promises. He wants his people to be with him. But if his people say, nah, I'm not that interested. God's, he's holy. It's not God being evil or wrong. It's him saying, you've rejected me. Be warned. The promises of God will keep you going though, Joshua is saying. He's pressing the urgency of needing to keep total devotion to God. Faithfulness to a faithful God. These are actually very helpful uh, words for us because this idea is the same for us today as God's people who follow Jesus. Paul in his letter uh, to Timothy in in 2 Timothy said something very similar. Have a look at 2 Timothy. Um, It'll it'll come up on the screen as I pull it up. Uh, Timothy says... In chapter 2, verse 11. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. It's not um, ridiculous to think that God is going to keep to being faithful and if people decide to reject him, he's going to go, well, you've rejected me. I reject you. It's a real and sober warning not to be complacent. I think it's the burden that we have when we see that in our lives. Quite possibly as I've reflected on this, it's probably the biggest and hardest, the most grief-ridden burden you can have as a pastor. I know you, you, you sometimes may feel that with your uh, family and friends as well. When someone who loves Jesus decides to reject him. Why does it happen? It can be maybe two ways. A decision that's made where a choice between God or someone or something else. Where there's a relationship in which I need to decide, am I going to continue in this relationship and move on from God? Or am I going to choose God and not be in that relationship? Sometimes though, and probably even more often, is the times where you don't really notice, where there's just little decisions that are made, where priorities are shifted, where God isn't the first priority. And over weeks, maybe over decades, you realise, I'm not really following God and I have no heart for Him, my fire doesn't uh, uh, burn for Him, I'm not thinking about Him, I don't really trust in Him day by day. And when did that happen? Well, no one really knows. 
It was just a lot of little priority decisions made. It's heartbreaking when Jesus, the Lord of all, died for us and gave his life for us to abandon that. And sometimes it's not deliberate. It's just many little decisions that build bitterness and harbour rejection of God. I need to warn myself not to make those decisions. And I need to warn you, if you love Jesus, not to make those decisions. To come back to him wholeheartedly. That's where Joshua wants to take the people because the people made lots of stupid decisions. Sometimes they weren't little though, were they? Like when they were in the wilderness and Joshua was getting the Ten Commandments and they'd build a golden calf. That ain't a little decision. That is just sheer stupidity. And sometimes we do sheer stupidity as well. We need to come back to God. And so he gives his great speech to the leaders. And then he gives his final speech to all of Israel in chapter 24 that we've had read to us. We see that uh, right at the beginning. He says, Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges and officials of all Israel and they presented themselves before God. And then he goes on to say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And the main point he, he really wants them to take away is what we've already kind of established. He says, remember your history, is what God tells them. That's my summary of it. From verses 3 to uh, 13, you get this amazing summary of kind of what's happened in the Bible so far with God's people. It's a brilliant little snapshot and summary of what's happened. And basically, he's saying to them, I have brought you out of Egypt. You've had victory over over those gods I've victory over the Amorites and those gods. I've brought you into the promised land of the Canaanites and and, and, uh, rejected those gods. I have given you what I promised to Abraham. The lob that we talk about is in there. He led them throughout Canaan and gave them the land in verse 3. He gave them many descendants, the offspring that goes on and follows in verse 3. He talks about the country that they have and how everything's been assigned to them. And then in verse uh, 13, the land that they've been given, there's great blessing and the blessing's beautifully outlined and you will live uh, in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Often vineyards and olive groves represent fruitfulness and blessing. That is what they've been given. And he's reminding them, God has given you what you need. To be with him. Remember your history, people. It is good history. I don't know if any of you like history at school. Does anyone like history? Yeah. What is it you like about it? That's not a rhetorical question. Tell me, what, what, what do you like about history? It's the same as us. The same as us. Not much changes. Just context. Yeah. Absolutely, because it's not very similar to us and it helps us understand the present and the future. And that is exactly how God's made us. 
And so when it comes to our relationship with God, he says, remember your history because it helps you understand how you live in the present, what's going on now, and actually your eternal home. Because our eternal home is our eternal land where many of God's people are blessed into the future. And so remembering our history here points us there. Remember your history. And so as you remember your history, that's why we act, just as a side point, it just popped into my head, that's why we bother doing the Old Testament. Some people often say, every now and then you get, oh, we don't need to worry about the Old Testament. Let's just go to the New, let's just read the Gospels, talk about Jesus. We, that's so old. No, no, no. We want to remember our history because it points us to now, into the future. We want to do the hard work, even when it's a tricky passage and, and it's so foreign to us because it helps us truly understand how great God is and how he keeps his promises. Now, verse 14. These are great verses. Seriously, verses 14 to 15. Write them on your hearts. Joshua says, if you're going to give an inspirational speech, if you're going to be an inspirational leader of God's people, he nails it. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Yep, it's your choice. You go do that. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. What a great inspirational charge to the people of God. And Joshua was saying the whole point of being God's people in this covenant relationship we have with him that is built around faithfulness and God keeping his promises and us responding to them is to serve him single-mindedly. And as we serve him single-mindedly, you need to choose for that yourselves. And I hope you hear that today, all of us. And he says, you know what? That's your choice. My household. As far as I can. As far as I can influence and build up and serve my household, we are going to serve the Lord. That is a beautiful way to think about how the Christian household should be. That is the framework we're going to be. In the end, Ethan is going to need to decide whether he loves, he, he, he does. But as he gets older and older and becomes an adult, I can't make him continue to follow in Jesus. It's his choice. But I can tell you, as a family, we are going to be a family that seeks to serve the Lord and come back to him when we get it wrong. And that's the framework in which I pray I lead my family and my kids and my wife in. How about you? He urges the people to think that way. As a nation, they should think like that. In their tribes, they should think like that. In their families, they should think like that. We will serve the Lord. It's the choice to make. And he does it so beautifully because it's really no choice at all, isn't it? It's like, serve the Lord. Oh, yeah, you can serve the gods that don't exist. It's kind of what he says. 
And then the people, stirred by what he says, they say in verse 16, the dialogue's fantastic here, verse 16, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua says, you're not able to serve the Lord. Joshua has a bit of realism, but the people say, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, okay then, I'm worried about this because the track record and where I think things are going, but you can be witnesses to yourselves. You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses. The people are stirred to follow the Lord. Joshua says, so if you're going to serve the Lord, what's the action you need to take? Verse 23, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? Though The people who are single-mindedly saying they're following the Lord and Joshua doesn't tell them, avoid those gods out there, he says, throw away the gods that are among you. There seems to be some hint, some sense of problem. And the people declare, we will serve the Lord our God. It's a challenge, isn't it? To be single-mindedly serving God and the only way you can do that is if you own up to the fact that we are challenged to live for other gods and then Joshua finishes by making a covenant with um, uh, with the people reaffirming the promises made to Abraham the land the offspring and blessing and where do they do it what's the name of the place Shechem where did Abraham get the promises Shechem where does Joshua die Shechem, the promises of God, we never depart from them. And so we're going to finish today with something a little bit unusual. Uh, in a moment when we finish, we're going to consider God's promises and we're going to, if you wholeheartedly believe with them, then it's your choice, I'm not making you do it. You can together, as these people here today, respond by saying we believe in the promises and I'll lead us through that as we finish. But as we um, consider what we've seen, the application we take away is that total devotion to God is actually the only choice. And the choice we need to make is for everyone here today. I mean, what are the options? God or something else? And I want to take us back to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because the people said, we will serve the Lord. We're in the blessed position of living post-Jesus where we know that the Lord has come and God himself has become flesh and died for us and, and, uh, and rescued us from our rejection of him and conquered death. That is the Lord that the people declared back then they'll serve the Lord. That Lord Jesus is who we need to respond to. And it's just such a simple, beautiful declaration. Look at it there on the screen. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. There's no tricky formula to becoming a Christian. There's no tricky formula to knowing what it is to be a follower of Jesus. It's just 
There's no extra brilliance you need to be. There's no amount of weeks you need to come to church in a row. There's no extra acts of holiness you need to do. It's to truly think, I am wholeheartedly believing that Jesus is the King, the Lord of everything, and he has rescued me through his death, and I have a life because of his resurrection. That is what it is. That is all you need to see. Why serve the Lord? Because Jesus came. He died and rose again. How much more is he, if he's going to do that for us, to face all of God's wrath for the sin of the world, for what our rejection of him, if he's going to do that, how much more is he going to save us? The promises are sure. It's not, you will probably be saved if you do a little bit of good. It's you will be saved. No one else keeps all their promises. And even if someone did, they're not as good as that. This is eternal. What's stopping you when Jesus, the Lord, has done that for us? We're in even a far greater position than the Israelites were when Joseph is speaking to them and they've seen all the rescue and remember that. Because our history is to look back to a cross where Jesus dies in our place. Today can be that day, even if you've got lots of questions, even if there's much you don't understand, but if you believe that Jesus died for you, it becomes the most important day in your life. You mightn't have thought that when you walked in today, but it can be if you walk out knowing that you have life with him forever. And I want to encourage you to think that today. It can be the day when you start to realise I need, uh, whether I'm a Christian or not, I'm not sure where I am or how I think, but forgetting all of that, this is the line in the sand day for me where I will serve the Lord. From this day on, there will be no confusion in my life. I'm going to refresh and I'm going to say, yes, Jesus is Lord. And when we uh, declare what we believe at the end together, you say that with your mouth, believe it in your heart, you have that confidence. But I think it would be unwise for us to just leave it there. Because the total devotion that Joshua demanded was to say, if you're going to do that, you've got to do a bit of diagnosing of yourself. You've got to get rid of the foreign gods. And we need to do a little bit more surgery to find our foreign gods. Because I'm pretty sure there may be someone... Maybe it's in your past and your heritage, but I'm pretty sure not many of us have totem poles that we worship or we worship other gods of other religions necessarily. We don't have... Maybe someone does. And the call is quite clearly just to reject and to throw them away today. It could be crystals. It could be any spiritual things like that that aren't devoted towards God. But more than likely for most of us, the gods are a little bit more hidden in our Western culture, aren't they? And sometimes the gods are good things that we just make gods instead of putting them in their right place. What, what could be gods for us today in the Western world? What could you say? 
What comes to your mind? Money. Sport. Before we go any further, money, really, in Colossians chapter 3, is greed is idolatry. Well, if that's the case, Australia is a nation that has given itself over to idolatry. It's just the reality. The Western world has done that. Because money is where we find confidence, future and security. And we can never get enough of it. And we never have enough security. That's the challenge we have. It doesn't matter whether you have a lot or little. It's a terrible God. Sport, absolutely. Any type of leisure, any type of time. It's, a, it's one where it's so much fun and we can orient our whole lives around it. I always think, um, I like to try and do exercise. I'm really bad at it at the moment. But I do notice how on Sundays there's a lot more people in the gym. There's a lot more people running around the streets when I drive to church than there are serving the Lord together. A great illustration for understanding any type of God is my mate who was at Bible college with me. Uh, he, he was a friend um, who I knew kind of distantly back when I was 16, 17, 18, 19 at the golf club that I grew up. I'm sorry, it's not a golf illustration, but it's not a sport one particularly. But the thing is, what happened was, right, I didn't really know him, but then all of a sudden this guy got really good. He got so good, and he was like 18, that he won the club championships, which is a big deal. That means you're the best player in the club that year. And no one knew him. He just kind of turned up, and he was always playing, and he was always there, and he won. And I kept on. And then all of a sudden, it was within 12 months, he disappeared. No one saw him again. He was gone. I didn't know where he went because he was only kind of a, an associate friend. We played a couple of times and things like that. And then I went to Bible college, and I'm in my second year, and I'm having lunch, and I'm sitting in the first year, and he's at, across the table from me at, at lunch, at Bible college. I'm like, what are you doing here? And we had this whole conversation, and he realised that for him, golf was absolutely his God. And he could not, when he became a Christian, he could not serve both masters, that he got rid of his golf clubs and he did not play golf at all because he knew what it did to him. And he didn't play. So that's why he disappeared. Just after he kind of reached the pinnacle in our club and everyone's, why isn't he not, he's supposed to be our pennant player. Like he just disappeared. And he realised, and then as he grew and grew in his understanding of God, he's now a pastor. That is diagnosing the gods in your life. And it doesn't matter if it's sport, it doesn't matter if it's money, it doesn't matter if it's materialism. You diagnose it like that. That was a great lesson. Sometimes you've got to cut it out like that. Sometimes you've got to reprioritise. See, one of the biggest idols in the Western world, we don't want to cut out like that. Our family. Right? we just got to reorient it. Christians struggle with making our families our gods, putting them many times, making decisions in front of our kids instead of God first, in all different types of ways. You look at our, our society, the way parents act at schools, and the way we, uh, they engage with sport and seeking to achieve, and the way we talk about uh, our kids and their success, kids 
are the, one of the number one idols in our society. And actually what we're doing is not helping them, we're hampering them. We need to refocus our priorities. Because the number one idol that all of them fit into, what do you think it is? It's not family, but it's close. It's the idol of yourself. Have you considered that sometimes you make yourself out to be God? You don't probably call yourself God. You don't? No one? But sometimes you make decisions like you are. I can think of times when I've done that. So the job choices I make, the friend decisions I make, the desire to be popular, the the need to be happy, the security I need, they're all about me being God instead of God being God. The relationships that I have, do my relationships um, move me into serving the Lord or away from serving the Lord? Can I encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're convicted to serve him, that today you do some diagnosing in your life and look for the gods, look for the dangers and do some surgery and throw them out. Because Jesus is our Lord. And what I want us to do to finish today, uh, I would want you together with me to make a declaration of total devotion to God. As Joshua and the people did, I think we should do. Let me show you how we're going to do it together. On the screen, we're going to have some words. And if you're convicted by them, we're going to say them together. as a, a call and response. I will say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you together will say, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. We believe that our Lord Jesus died and rose from the dead to give us life. Then I'll ask, how will we live? We will live by repentance, turning back to him. And faith, trusting in the promises of God to save us. What do we reject? Will be my next question. All other fake gods. We will serve the Lord only and obey him. And then lastly, what do we long for? Our eternal home where we as the people of God will dwell forever. We'll dwell with him forever. Whether that is your conviction or for the first time your conviction today. I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect and then we're going to say, say these, uh, this uh, call together. It's a great way to finish Joshua, isn't, isn't it? As his people recommit to the Lord that we love. If you have any questions, if you've decided today, today is the day when Jesus is your Lord, I'd love to have a chat with you. If you've got a friend here, you've come in, I'm sure they would love to chat with you. If you fill out a communication card, if you're a visitor, that's all the uh, buckets are for, um, you can let us know and I'd love to help you figure out a lot more. If you're not sure yet, but you want to think more, which is a good thing to do if you're not sure. We, we don't want you to go away and not think about it again. We'd love to help you. Let's just spend a moment in reflection and then we will say these, uh, this declaration together.
This is your heart's conviction. Let's say this declaration together. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. We believe that our Lord Jesus died and rose from the dead to give us life. How will we live? We will live by repentance and faith, trusting in the promises of God to save us. What do we reject? All other fake gods. We will serve the Lord only and obey him. What do we long for? Our eternal home where we as the people of God dwell with him forever. 